Good morning. It's a privilege to be able to share with you uh, from God's word and also out of the partnership that OMF has had with Chinese Gospel Church over many years. Uh, these are strange times, as you and all of us will realize. And uh, so I'm here in my room speaking to you on Zoom, uh, and I trust that this recording will work and the, the Lord will, will bless and work through this technology as he has uh, through many different uh, vehicles and means over many years. Let's just uh, begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to listen to you, to hear you speak through your word. And I pray that as we spend time uh, with Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch, uh, that you would guide us and help us to understand what you were doing and its relevance for us today. So we thank you for your promise to be with us as we, as we look at your word in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is, these are strange times. I'd hope to be able to be with you in person, but uh, <clears throat> we, will, we will do trust the Lord to speak. The great thing is that even in these strange times, God hasn't changed. He is still the same. And we have been here before. God's church has been uh, through strange times in the past. Uh, we have been through lockdowns. There have been times in the history of the church when there have been uh, a need to uh, be brought together or to be limited in our ability to travel. Um, and yet in all of this, God has still been building his church. Uh, God's mission has not been held back. And, uh, and, and we believe, I believe that that is true also today. So as we think about mission, uh, we want to enter into this story and into what God is doing with a sense of hope and anticipation. And really what I would like to do then is to take us back to the very beginning of uh, the story of the early church's uh, movement and mission. And <clears throat> to look at some of the principles that we can see from those early stories in Acts, and particularly from uh, a, a few verses in Acts chapter 11, uh, right around the time when the early church was wrestling and trying to understand what God was doing as he broke out in mission into the world. Um, these were hard times, times of persecution, as we'll see. And uh, there's a saying that says, when uh, the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, actually, I, I think that historically, as you look at mission, um, when the going gets tough, God's gospel gets going. The good news gets uh, spread in remarkable ways, and we'll see that. So let's start by just reading Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. But I'd like to start uh, by, by just reading a few verses, and if you can read with me. This is uh, verse uh, 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now this, this passage is a bit of a, a, a transition point because uh, Luke, in writing Acts, has taken us through some sort of specific stories, and I'll just mention them in a minute. And it, but at this point, he wants to just remind us of what has gone before. And so that's why he mentions the persecution in connection with the, the, persecu the death of, of Stephen. And uh, so if you think back, uh, Christ has been crucified, risen, has, uh, there's been the transfiguration. And before he left, he reminded and he called the disciples. He, he gathered them and he commissioned them. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all the nations. So he clearly gave them that mandate to understand the gospel as being 
not just for the Jews, not just for their people, but for the, all the nations, for all of, of, uh, of the world. And then in chapter two, we had the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when God came amongst his people as they waited, and amongst his people at a time when Jews were gathered from all the nations, and the sign of the Spirit was the coming of tongues of fire and the ability to speak the languages of these gathered people. And Luke recorded that. And then you get a number of things that happened coming out of that. But then in chapter seven, you have Stephen's death and persecution, which, which Luke specifically mentions. And then in the following chapters, you get these little vignettes of some of the, 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 the specific things that begin to happen out of that. One was Philip and in Samaria, the conversion of the Ethiopian uh, on, the, on the road to Damascus, uh, to Ethiopia. And then you have the persecution of Saul and his conversion. And then in chapter 10, you have Peter, and Cornelius, and the story of how God works in Peter's life specifically to challenge his prejudices, his limitations, his limited understanding of God's heart. You know, that wonderful uh, phrase at the, at the end of that story when Peter says, now I know that God loves men from every tribe and nation. And uh, so you see that Luke has, has given us these insights into these, these stories, and now he wants to step back. And he wants to take those stories and he wants to place them in the wider picture of what's happening. And so at the beginning of this passage, he reminds us that there was that persecution and that it resulted in the spreading of the Christians. The Christians were pushed out. They were, they were scattered by the persecution. And uh, something begins to happen in Antioch. Something begins to happen that's new. Something is going on. And it begins to happen because some, some, some of those who were scattered had the boldness to speak the message of the good news. They accepted that God had allowed them to be scattered and to be spread out into other places beyond Jerusalem and into Phoenicia and Cyprus and to Antioch. And they, they talked about this good news. They, they told the story of Jesus and they told it initially to Jews, but then also some of them began to speak to Greeks. These are ones who understood the message of Christ, who understood the challenge that, Christ, that Jesus had given them, and they talked about the good news uh, beyond the boundaries of the Jewish people amongst the Gentiles as well. Persecution gets the messengers moving. Persecution widens the gospel's impact, and we see this over the history of the church, that as God allows persecution of his people, the result is that his people are scattered. And as they, they are scattered, where they have a clear testimony and the boldness and the courage to speak that testimony, then the gospel is spread. And in some ways, you can step back and say, God allowed the persecution to challenge and force his church to accept the mandate and to practice the mandate that Jesus had given them. So that boldness is a critical part of this spread of the gospel. And the, the, the persecution doesn't just spread the gospel, though. It doesn't just widen the gospel's influence. It also deepens it because persecution refines and clarifies and strengthens the messenger if we are prepared to allow that. Uh, in, in persecution, it's easy for us as God's people to hide our identity in Christ, to hide our our, our, our nature as Christians. And we're going to see that actually in this passage is when you first begin to see that word applied because the, the, the believers who were scattered did not hide their identity in Christ, quite the opposite. 
by choosing to identify yourself, you may increase the persecution, but that is an essential part of witness. Persecution also uh, challenges us to think about our faith. It forces us back with questions and it, it forces us to, to think about what is it that Christ taught? What is it that we understand? What is the core of the gospel? I remember uh, as a student at York, as a philosophy student, uh, and, and you know, being challenged. I remember some of my uh, Christian friends saying, you shouldn't study philosophy at a place like York. It's a godless university and, and you'll lose your faith. And I remember very clearly feeling like if my faith was so easy to lose, then I really didn't have a faith that was robust. And I wanted to be sure that I, I had a strong faith. And so I, I took up that challenge. And I remember being in philosophy classes and being challenged and, and identifying myself as a Christian and having that challenge in the classes. And it forced me to go back to scripture, to read, to talk with my friends, to try and understand what is it I actually believe? And, and was what was being attacked actually what I believed or not? Do I defend it or not? So the persecution both widens the influence of the gospel and it also deepens it if we are willing to stand, if we are willing to share our faith, to take a bold stand. And that's what happened in this early situation, and particularly in Antioch, people took a stand. That, uh, that taking a stand is so important. I remember as a, a, a student at York and I ended up after a couple of years being in the leadership of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and we had a tremendous ministry there and had a book table and people would come to the book table who were new students. I think her parent, their parents said to them, make sure you check out the Christian groups. And so every year at the beginning of the year, we would have these conversations with new students and we would welcome them to the group and explain the meetings and, and encourage them whatever way we can. But we always did this as well. We always said to them, listen, the most important thing you can do in this first week that you're on campus in the dorm or wherever you, you are is tell five of your non-Christian friends that you're a Christian. Identify yourself as a Christian because they will hold you accountable for that. They will be the ones who will say, but I thought you were a Christian. And that's what happened in those early days. People identified themselves with the message of Christ. And in verse 21, we're told that the Lord's hand was with them and a great number believed. So the evidence of God's blessing was there as the Spirit went before them and brought them uh, people who turned to Christ, people who embraced the message of the gospel. But that created a problem. That raised some issues for some people. Why? And let's read on in, uh, in verse uh, 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now notice again the, Luke's emphasis on a great number, that the church continued to grow. Now how did that happen? Well, it wasn't automatic. And in fact, this is one of those critical moments in the growth of the early church, because the church leadership in Jerusalem had some choices to make. They heard this news of things going on in Antioch. Something's going on in Antioch. And you can imagine maybe what that uh, news looked like. I'm sure that people came back from Antioch and said, do you know what Barnabas is doing? Or sorry, not what Barnabas, do you know what's happening? Do you know what those people are scattered out? What's going on in Antioch? Do you, do you approve of this? Do you, do you agree that the Gentiles should, should be invited to be followers of Jesus? There are all sorts of questions, and some of it may have been very positive. Some of it, I would imagine, was not so positive. And there's a, there's a challenge here to, to, for the leaders to decide what to do. 
And they had options. They could have clamped down. They could have said, no, this is not how the gospel is to be understood. This is not the way that the church should grow. They could have just ignored it and abandoned it, said it's got nothing to do with us, not us. And I'm sure that there was pressure from good people on all sides of that. I'm sure that there, was, there were good people with genuine concern saying, I'm not sure about this. I don't know if this is a good thing. And this is a very common thing as, as the gospel spreads and as we see growth and as God begins to do new and unexpected things, that we, we look at it, we hear this news and we say, is that right? Is that, is that God doing that? Is that in fact, or is that something else? And that's not wrong. Movements are like this. They, they take on a life of their own and we long to see the gospel become a dynamic movement that spreads. But the reality is, and this is something we talk about in OMF quite a bit, we can't create a movement. We can't be the one. It is the Holy Spirit that creates movements. There are things we can do to kill a movement. We can discourage it. We can, we can respond in an ungodly way to it, but only God can make it happen. And God was at work in Antioch. He was building his church and there were some new things there and the leaders in Jerusalem had to deal with it. And one of the great things about this passage is that they responded to it well. They identified the right person, Barnabas, a key leader in the church, and they sent him to Antioch. And we don't know from the scriptures what his specific mandate was, but we do know that he, he was sent. And when he got to Antioch, he did check out what was happening. And we're told that he saw evidence of the grace of God. So I, I understand that to be that the leaders in Jerusalem did say to Barnabas, hey, will you just go up there and trust, ask the Lord for discernment to know if this is of him or not. Go and look for God at work. And that is appropriate. Is God at work? That's something that, that leaders, church leaders, we need to ask the Lord for that gift of discernment. But notice who the church leaders sent. They chose someone that they knew well and trusted, but who had a gift of encouragement, someone who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. As, as the passage says, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was the one they chose because they wanted to encourage. They wanted if God was at work, to do everything they could to encourage this. And that's exactly what happened. God was at work. Barnabas sensed that. He knew that. And he, when he came to Antioch, he took time to listen, to pray, to discern. And then he dived right in. And he encouraged the new disciples there. And he sought to see that they would thrive. And we're going to look in a little bit in a moment at what specific steps he took in that and what are the, the, the factors or the ways in which we can see the gospel thriving in this beginning, just the early, early stages of the church. You know, when we, when we go out, we often find that God surprises us. And when I talk, when I say go out, I don't mean to say go to the other side of the world. It might be in your neighborhood. It, it, it might be just in your school. But as we're prepared to trust God and to look for him, he goes before us. And often that surprises us. I, one of the famous stories of um, the history of uh, CIM and OMF is the story of uh, J.O. Fraser and the Lisu movement. The Lisu were a, a large um, ethnic group, tribal group in the mountains of Southwest China, unreached uh, hundreds of thousands, um, millions of, of Lisu unreached. And J.O. Fraser was an engineer from the UK who had a heart a passion to see God's glory amongst the nations. And he went to China and he prayed and he prayed and he worked hard, he learned language and he traveled the mountains around the Sawin River over and over again, went to the mountains, 
trying to contact and speak the gospel. He gave bold testimony as the, as the early disciples did that we've seen. And he saw no results. He saw no results for many years. And he prayed and there were people praying uh, in the UK. And then one day God gave him the confidence that his prayers had been answered. Fraser talks about this in the book, Mountain Rain. And so he began to pray a different prayer. He began to pray a prayer of confidence, calling on God and affirming God's promise and claiming that promise. And seven years later, he was in a market and, and a tribal man came up to Melisu and said, would you come and speak to our village? Because we, we want to hear more about this. And when Fraser went up into the mountains, he discovered that God had been at work beyond his expectations. And there were groups of people anxious to hear the message. They had been listening. And that movement exploded. And it traveled across the mountains. And it became a tremendous church. And Fraser was, it, it was beyond his expectations and his ability because he was prepared to be there then as an encourager, like Barnabas, to discern that God is at work and then to come alongside the Lisu people to train, to encourage. And the result is a tremendous church, which continues to this day. And that's what we see in verse 24. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. So I would ask us all to think about and be open to God doing new things and to consider how we can encourage, how we can discern rightly and then encourage those who are at work. And what does that actually look like? Well, let's read on in uh, verse 25, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, I just want to pick up a few things in this last section that, to me, help us understand what it means to discern, come alongside, and then to journey with uh, God's work amongst uh, people, his new work. It's interesting that this is the first time in which the disciples are called Christians. That happens in Antioch, in this place we're looking at. And Luke tells that story. They were called Christians because they were identified with Christ. And that's important. Names are important. Uh, I, I realized this uh, working in the Philippines, uh, where we were called Christianos. And a Christiano was just the Filipino word to refer to anyone who called themselves a Christian. What was interesting about that was that actually when in our work amongst Muslims, the word Christiano was not a helpful word. Christiano for our Muslim friends meant people who over the last 300 years had been their enemies. They had killed Muslims. Christianos ate pork and they worshipped idols. And the Muslims rejected Christianos for those reasons. And we looked at it and said, but, but we don't kill Muslims. We don't eat pork. We had chosen not to in order to, for our witness to be uh, reduce that barrier. And we didn't worship idols. So when our Muslim friends looked at us and said, you're a Christiano, we said, well, I, as you understand that, actually, I don't, I don't think that word applies. And so we, we didn't use the word Christiano. Uh, we called ourselves Tagasunud ni Isa al-Masi, which just literally in the, in the language of the people, the Kalagan language, just meant followers of Jesus the Messiah. We, we wanted to 
to move away from the word Cristiano because of the negative implications uh, that came with it. But we knew we could not lose the centrality of our relationship with Christ. That it is Christ himself that defines who we are. And this is what was so important for those early disciples. And what's wonderful about this is they were called Christians. Why? Because they were identified with Christ. Because that's what they talked about. That was their message. They talked about Jesus everywhere. And so even the people around them who, who weren't their followers, who, who weren't followers of Jesus, who, who weren't believers, their, their response was, oh yeah, those are, those are Christians because they're always talking about Christ. How did that happen? Well, not by accident. Look, look at the, the phrase just before where Luke says that they were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. Notice that right before that he says, that Paul and Barnabas met with the church for a whole year and taught great numbers of people. You see, that emphasis on Christ, that commitment to Christ, the centrality of Christ happens because that's what was taught. That's what Barnabas taught. And that teaching was so important. So movements don't just need discernment and encouragement. They need teaching. They need good, solid teaching. And that's what Barnabas brought. He brought a commitment to teach the words of Christ to these new believers who the Spirit was at work amongst. But that raises a problem. And I'm going to take you back to verse 25 for a minute. Because you can imagine, we've seen now, and in this passage, three times, it talks about great numbers of believers. The numbers were multiplying and beyond expectations. And you can imagine Barnabas as, as one of the key leaders, and, and in many ways, probably the, the most qualified teacher, that he was in huge demand. He had many people clamoring for him. He would have meetings, I'm sure, and talk about the message, and people would just sit for hours, and then they would bring others and the numbers. And Barnabas realized he needed help. And here's where you see such wisdom on the part of Barnabas, because he remembers Saul. He remembers this young guy that had come to Christ so remarkably after persecuting the church. And he remembers, and if you'll remember, it was Barnabas in chapter 9 who was a mentor for Saul and who defended Saul in chapter 9, verse 27, defended Saul to the church, the, the church leaders who were very skeptical. This guy really converted. Is he just pretending in order to persecute us again? Barnabas remembered Saul, and he went to Tarsus to find him. And, and think about that as a, as a decision of leadership. He's got an out-of-control uh, uh, group of believers. He's got a huge numbers. This is, this is a, 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 a revival happening. This is wonderful. And Barnabas could easily have just said, I've just got to buckle down and do the work. But he actually chooses to leave all of that that's going on. And as far as we can tell, he actually left and he went to Tarsus and he found Saul. He took time out to go and find the resources that he knew he needed uh, to bring about a growth in the teaching capacity of the church. Barnabas was a team builder. It wasn't about his ego. He knew that it, he wasn't enough. He knew that he needed help. And he went and found Saul, this gifted young man, and he invested in Saul. Right back in, in chapter 9, he'd invested, and now he's bearing the fruit of that as he's able to open doors to bring Saul into a teaching role. You know, I, I had that experience myself as a young man in InterVarsity, and our InterVarsity inter staff worker, Keith, was a, a really gifted 
a leader and teacher and taught us so much. And I was, as I was grad, uh, graduating in uh, uh, 1984, I remember, I remember very clearly the day and the moment. I was in the van, in Keith's van, and Keith ran a, um, a multimedia program for InterVarsity, traveling across the country and showing multimedia uh, uh, shows. And we were sitting in the van and we were driving somewhere and Keith turned to me and said, John, you know, what plans do you have after you graduate? And I didn't really have anything particular. And, and Keith said to me, you know, I see leadership gifts in you and I could use you if you'd be interested in joining InterVarsity and working with me. And that moment is, was such a powerful moment for me because it was a respected older leader reaching out to me, putting his hand on my shoulder, affirming my gifts and saying, I could use you. I believe God can use you in ministry and I, I'm willing to invest in you and, and train you for that. And that started off a two-year adventure of working with Keith and Spectrum Productions, where I learned so much. I, I ended up being on the platform in front of university students and professors running panels across the country because Keith had opened up that opportunity for me. There are tremendous challenges that we have and we need to, are we prepared as we face those challenges to go look for the resources that God has given us and to be open to seeing his resources and other people. I've had the privilege of doing that myself uh, in, in, in my career as a mission leader. And it's one of my great joys to think and pray, to consider people, and then to be able to come alongside someone and say, I see gifts in you. I think of uh, Jasmine, a tremendously gifted uh, young woman who had a heart for the Lord and a passion for food and for creation and for, for nutrition. And, and uh, she had worked with our organization for a number of years and she was, uh, she'd come to sort of the end of the role that she'd been given. And I knew that she was thinking of what next. And, and so I met with her, my wife and I, and we talked with her. And, and I said to her, you know, your passion for creation care, would you be interested in pursuing that? And she said, yeah, I'd love to do that. But there's nothing in OMF. And I said, well, I believe OMF needs an emphasis there. If you were, would you be willing to invest in that area if I could arrange for you uh, to, to fill a role in OMF? And she said, yeah, I love OMF. And so she, she continued with OMF in a new role, a creation care role. And she's been in uh, the Philippines for the last three years, had a tremendous initial ministry. And we see her as a, a, a gifted leader that in the future will provide leadership in East Asia and here in Canada around creation care, reaching out and touching people. So Barnabas and Saul's teaching because they were clear on who Christ is and that that was the core of the message, resulted in those early believers being known as Christians. And this is, I think, what the characteristics of the movement that God has built, was building then and that he is still building around his world. Clear, good teaching of Christ. A clear, bold witness from the very beginning. And also a generosity. Where do I see that? Well, in the last few verses, you get this interesting little picture, just as we close, of this prophet who comes down and predicts a famine. And, and he speaks to these new believers. And remember that these believers were facing persecution, that there was lots of pressure. And, and uh, they were, they were under, under pressure and they were growing strong and they had many needs. And uh, as far as we know, and from the evidence of later on in, in Acts, these were not necessarily wealthy people. There were some that were wealthy, but there were many that were poor. There were certainly slaves. There were, so this is a very diverse group, and they had their own needs. And yet their response to that prediction of famine 
was a response of generosity. Their response was to gather resources that they had and to say to Paul and Barnabas, would you take these resources back to our, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to bless them? And would you, when you go, tell the story of what God is doing here in Antioch? And that unity of fellowship, that commitment to each other, that recognition that they were not just an isolated group in Antioch, but they were part of a wider community of God's people and that they wanted to bless those people is, I think, a, a critical part of understanding what it means to be part of, uh, to be an effective movement of God's people. So mission, as we go, requires disciple making. It's the broadening of the mission. It's the, the being thrust out but it's also the depth of the mission. And as we look at the pandemic and what's happening in our world today and all of the challenges, my prayer is that this will result in a broadening, a spreading out of the gospel as people look for ways to extend the gospel into the, the world that is desperate for hope, but also that it will result in deep disciple making. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like a commitment to discern where God is at work and to follow that. The commitment to encourage those that are being reached to come alongside them, to teach them well, to practice generosity as we involve ourselves in their, in their lives. And as we do that, we will see, as this passage again and again says, that God brings great numbers because he, will, he is at work and he will bless us as we seek to come alongside. So those are the questions I would leave with you as I close. For you, as the... As the as, as the church, how do you see God at work? How do we see God at work in unexpected and perhaps even uncomfortable ways in these days? Do you have questions about what is God doing? Seek to discern his will. Look for him at work. How do we respond to that? Are we encouraging? Are we, are we quick to encourage? Are we eager to learn? Are we bold in our witness? Are we generous in our fellowship? These are the marks of God's people and his movements across the globe. Thank you for an opportunity to share with you this morning. Let me just close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you are building your church and that you use us as your people remarkably for those purposes. And in these strange days, we pray that you would give us hope and confidence that would lead to bold witness, to a clear testimony of who Christ is, to a commitment to deeply teach people and to living lives of fellowship, of unity and of encouragement of generosity with those who are in need uh, around the world, our brothers and sisters. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you. Look forward to uh, hearing more from you in the days ahead.